to adjust some of your expectations today, okay? I'd like you to think that you are with several of us here today three weeks ago. And we're at church in Haiti, okay? And this is one of the nicer churches, okay? We have walls. We have a roof over our head. We even have electricity, okay? But it's about 25 degrees hotter there than it is in here, okay? Uh, You see, there's no air conditioning. There are several ceiling fans, only a couple of which are operable, uh, they, they, they did turn a swiveling fan on the Americans who continued to, you know, do this. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's it. You know, we have open windows, no screens. And uh, I'm up there sweating bullets. And the guy next door, next to me, my translator, Pastor Daniel, he's got a full suit on with a tie as cool as a cucumber, okay? You know, several years ago, uh, when we were talking about the kind of facility that uh, Lion and Lamb would like to have, uh, Larry McFall used to remind us, you see, Larry's been to several third world churches, and Larry would never say this, but the Vincent interpretation of the McFall exhortation was, we are wimps. Okay, we don't know how good we've got it. So, uh, you know when you when you, you do a workout and you break a sweat, how good that feels. Okay, uh, hopefully you're all feeling better now about how you're going to feel at the end of this service. Okay, so let's go there. Uh, uh, when I was in Haiti, I I uh, I preached. It was here Father's Day. And they celebrate Father's Day in Haiti, a different date, but I took the opportunity. Uh, And uh, what we have to talk about today also deals with fathers. We are uh, at the end of Matthew 5 in a series on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And I've got a note up here. It says, open your Bibles to, this is a note for Kent. So, nobody has an excuse. We did not put the longer passages on your handout because you've all got Bibles in front of you. All right? So, open to Matthew 5, and I'm going to read there uh, our passage for today, where it starts in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, if you can remember about five weeks ago, this is the same passage we talked about then. So why are we doing it again? Well, we're going to talk about a little different perspective today, because this passage is huge in the Gospel. Last time, as a review, we talked about how the scribes and Pharisees misinterpreted God's law to command people to hate their enemies. 
even though the Bible in the Old Testament or the New nowhere says to do that. And their enemies were, was anybody who wasn't a Jew. Uh, but it is also clear when you take an honest look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, particularly in Revelation, that God, in a very real sense, tells us to have perfect hatred for those who hate God. And we talked about how this hatred is a judicial hatred, meaning it has all to do about the very real judgment of God for God's enemies. Perfect judicial hatred is a call for judgment upon God's enemies, but that is free from personal spite or vindictiveness, and instead focuses on God's honor, righteousness, and on His justice. That's what we mean by perfect hatred. And we also talked about how important it is for all of us here in Topeka, Kansas, to make that distinction. And you all know what I'm talking about. All right. Uh, instead, on a personal level, Jesus corrects the misinterpretation and tells us all, as Christians, that we are to love not just our neighbors, but our enemies as well. And then he tells us how we can, at the same time, hate with perfect hatred and yet love our enemies. And by that, he gave us instructions to bless them that curse you. When they, when they speak bitterly against you, you return with kind words. Do good to them that hate you. Uh, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. And remembering that it's their sin nature that is carrying them by the hand to hell. And so we should be praying for their salvation. And then finally... As a capstone to all that, we simply follow Christ's example. Because when He was nailed to the cross, and He was being mocked and tortured to death, what did He say? Forgive them, Father. So, today, we want to really reach the climax of Jesus' teaching today. And we're going to try to answer imperfectly, I am sure, the foundational question, what is a Christian? Okay? Sounds a little presumptuous, doesn't it? You know, Kent's going to tell us what a Christian is. But that's exactly what this passage is all about. Even though it doesn't ask that question. Uh, everybody knows, duh, it's one who's counted or relying upon the finished work of Christ on the cross as full payment for their sins, accepts that free gift of salvation. That's totally true. That's where a Christian starts. You know, but life goes on after salvation, and the Bible tells us that our salvation affects our being, our existence, our way of living what I mean by this title is not how does one become a Christian, but rather how does the life of a Christian differ from all others. It is knowing a tree by its fruit. Hence, this hub, the subtitle is Am I Different? Jesus asked the question this way. What do you 
more than others. After explaining how we deal with the extreme case of loving even our enemies, Jesus now tells us what it means to really, I mean really, follow Him. He's not so much concerned about the details of how we behave and about our lives, but rather He's concerned about whether we understand who we are and how that affects the way that we treat others and the way that we look at life. Now, if you've been challenged by some of Jesus' other teachings, think about this. He sums up all of His teachings with this command that we as Christians are to become perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That's all. All right. Now, a little side note here. The overarching quality of the Gospel that we see in this passage is that of paradox. Okay? There's a definition on your study sheet there. A paradox is a statement or a circumstance that is, seems self-contradictory, but when you examine it or it's explained, it turns out to be true. And we see the paradox first in the New Testament when old Simeon is at the temple waiting on his life purpose here at this point in life of seeing the Messiah before he dies. And then Mary and Joseph are bringing the Christ child up to be circumcised. And there, uh, Luke 2 records, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. Did you catch that? Jesus, the Christ child, is set for the fall and the rise of many at the very same time. That is a paradox. Okay? We also see this paradox just in how we look at the Sermon on the Mount. There is nothing more discouraging than the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's tough enough when you think about trying to live out the Ten Commandments. But when you look at the spirit of the law in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, lust is the same thing as adultery. Anger is the same thing as murder in the heart. I mean, we're blown away. We're lost before we even start the race. On the other hand, There is nothing more encouraging than the Sermon on the Mount. Just the fact that He commands us to live this way means He's patting us on the back and said, it is possible. You can live this way. And there's nothing more encouraging than that. So, Grasping these two paradoxical aspects firmly is the key to understanding how to apply Jesus' teaching here. We've got to avoid certain tendencies, like teaching or understanding that the Sermon on the Mount is purely practical. I believe it is practical, it's applicable to today, but that it's purely practical, you know, that that we might say, well, because it says that, uh, you know, uh, I should be, uh, I should love my enemies, so I'm going to become a pacifist. No, that's not the intention at all. Uh, We can't just take certain statements out of context 
and, and apply them that way. We can't just think we just have to, we just, just do it. That's not the intention at all. Uh, we've got to become instead perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That is, not flawless, but a complete and finished person in His eyes. And we've got to avoid seeing ourselves as people who just try harder to do the right thing. So in short, we've got to grasp what it really means to be a Christian. And the answer lies in the question, what do you more than others? That Jesus asked. And the same idea was expressed in that long series of almost impossible you know, issues where he says prior to this, you have heard, but I say unto you. Uh, and just prior to that he said, uh, for I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what he's talking about here is a standard that's much higher than the scribes and Pharisees had. Uh, in our efforts to try to understand all this, uh, we're going to cover three basic concepts that hopefully are on your hand out there. And the first is that a Christian is an extraordinary person. Now think about that word. It just kind of rolls off your tongue. Extraordinary. It means not ordinary, but extraordinary. Beyond ordinary. Christians are to be known for being special, unusual, exceptional. So much so that a Christian can never be explained or described in natural terms. He's an enigma. There's something elusive about a Christian. And that uniqueness is displayed in at least a couple of ways. One is that a Christian does more than others do, and he does what others cannot do. Uh, if all I do is love and say hello to the people who are lovable, you know, the friendly, the beautiful, the nice, the wealthy, the influential, the powerful, what do I more than anybody else? Anybody can buckle down and go the first mile under compulsion. Even when you don't want to. But the Christian goes the second mile. He does more than is demanded. The Christian strives to go beyond what even the highest and the best of natural people do. She strives in her daily life to love her enemies, do good to the hateful and pray for a persecutor. And she loves the unlovable. The Christian is also like the Father and like Christ. Uh, the Christian is the child of the Heavenly Father and is therefore to be perfect as that Heavenly Father. And again, this is complete, a finished person, not a flawless person. But not only is she unlike others, she is like Christ. Now, the world looks and defines a Christian here as a person who believes in God and lives a moral and upright life. Wouldn't you say? That's what the general understanding is. But you know, there are lots of folks 
who believe in God and live moral and upright lives who are not Christians. Think about, I don't know if you know any, but some Jews, some Muslims. You know, Mormons are some of the most moral and good people you'll see out there. But they're not Christians. The key question is, as I look at my life and how I live it, do I and others see something in me that cannot be explained in ordinary terms, but which can only be explained by my relationship with Jesus Christ? That's the question. Second major point is that a Christian is a new creation. Okay? It says in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, and we say this, you know, talk about being a new creation. We sing songs about it, and that's all good. But what does it really mean to be a new creation? Okay? Uh, If you would, again, you you all got your Bibles here. Turn to Ephesians 4. Um, We want to take a look at this. And as you're turning, I'm just going to say, starting in, in verse 17, Paul is talking about the difference between the old self and the new and, and what we ought to see. And there in verse 22, he says, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life. And then in verse 23, he says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then he goes on, and he gets specific here, starting in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, he knew we would be, and, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And finally, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Thank you. Well, that's how Paul described it. Now, what I want to do today, and camp out here for most of the time, is some different perspectives on, on uh, this, how this practically works out. Uh, and the first question I want to ask is, uh, when, I, when we say, are we different, different from whom? Okay? Is it that no good scoundrel who we're pretty sure is going to burn in hell? No, no. We want to look at the really good folks of the world, the good, the kind, the generous, the moral man or woman at whom the world looks and says, you know, that's a really good person. Or they might even say, you know, that person's got to be a Christian. But they're not. And there are lots of folks out there who do a lot of good things. And some of them even make it very clear, and I am not a Christian. So how are we different from those folks? 
That's the question we want to look at here in a number of different areas. The good natural man looks at the law. He, you know, he's an upstanding citizen. You know, he wants to obey. He wants to observe. But he never goes beyond it. He does the minimum, sometimes grudgingly. The Christian, on the other hand, is to focus on the essence or the spirit of the, of the law rather than the letter of the law. He delights in the law after the inward man, after Christ in him. What about morality? Uh, you know, the natural man looks at that as something, you know, he doesn't want to be dishonest or immoral or unjust. He wants to be good. But the Christian hungers and thirsts after righteousness. It's something he seeks diligently. Sin. You know, the natural man looks at sin as something that is done or not done. You know, you don't want to lie, steal, cheat, you know, commit adultery or whatever. But the Christian starts with the understanding that sin resides first in the heart. Like the lust, adultery, anger, murder issue. Starts there. Um, the natural man's attitude towards self. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, I'm not a saint. I'm not perfect. Okay? And of course, what they're trying to do is avoid a claim of hypocrisy when they bring out some point that they want to make. But at least they're being honest about it. Um, the Christian, on the other hand, knows that he's a sinner, but he knows he's a vile sinner who deserves an eternity in hell, and he mourns his sin because of that. What about attitude towards others? A natural man views others with tolerance. And he might even feel sorry for the poor or those who are in distress. And a Christian does the same, but he, he sees more than the need for toleration and pity. But he sees those other people as fellow sinners who need a Savior, and he loves his neighbor as much as himself. The natural man looks at God as somebody to be feared and obeyed. The Christian, on the other hand, sees God as the one to be loved as Father. He is both holy and loving, and the Christian loves Him and obeys Him because of that. He loves with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. How to live life. Natural man lives it mechanically, you know, doing what he thinks is right or good. The Christian lives gracefully as an artist with love as his motivation because love is the fulfilling of the law. In the, in the area of serving and giving, there's really at least a couple of types among natural people. One is the type that serves a lot, or maybe gives a lot, but they keep track. They want credit for it. They give to a limit out of their overabundance. Um, you ever heard of foundations? You know, uh, big things that give money away? Okay? If you look at a lot of them, how are they named? It's like the John Q. Smith Foundation, isn't it? And those foundations, a lot of times, do a lot of good. 
You know, a lot of nonprofits, including Christian nonprofits, will write grant applications and get money to do good things. So, not knocking them at all. But who gets the credit? Understand? The second type of natural man is the one who fights fervently for the poor and the underclass and demands that the government give them somebody else's money. Okay? Well, the Christian, on the other hand, serves and gives sacrificially. Without a concern for himself. When thanks is given to a Christian, he points to God without whom he could do nothing. A natural man reacts to adversity oftentimes with dignity, strength, and self-control. He doesn't complain or whine, but he bottles it up and he toughs it out. A Christian, on the other hand, rejoices in tribulation because she knows that all things work together for good to those who love God. And that God allows trials and tribulations in her life to shape and mold and to perfect her. A natural man responds to injury from others oftentimes with restraint. doesn't strike back. You know, if there's an insult or something, he'll just kind of wave off the persecutor and say, whatever. You know? He might even be a passive resistor. However, a natural man never loves his enemy the way that Christ does. Christian instead denies himself, takes up his cross with an attitude of turning the other cheek, giving his cloak, going the extra mile. And he does so willingly and gladly. He loves his enemy so much so that he goes out of his way to do good for those that hate him and prays for the salvation of his persecutors. Finally, perhaps most significantly, when it comes to death, Oftentimes, a natural man will die with dignity, whether in his deathbed or on the battlefield, with strength and solemn acceptance for the inevitable end of all men. And as honorable as we may view that, that's not how a Christian should die. Not at all. You see, a Christian sees death not as an end, but the beginning of a glorious eternity. Paul said that he had a purpose to be here on earth, just as Christ did. But yet he also said in Philippians 1, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. The Christian also sees this childhood on earth as just a preface. It's an outer room. It's a foreshadowing of the real life that is to come what uh, the author of, uh, of Hebrews said, life eternal in that city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. So rather than fear, the Christian has a sense of anticipation. A Christian knows 
where his home is. And when it is time, he looks forward to going. You know, my, uh, my mom died last fall. And uh, while she lived, uh, you know, she was 95, and she loved to live life. And even in her last years, she would come over. And when you're at our house and everybody's there, it is total chaos. But she just loved to sit there and soak it in. And she couldn't participate in many of the conversations. You know, she, she, couldn't, she couldn't hear, she couldn't keep up with stuff. So we had to be intentional to talk to her. She loved life. and She loved her family. But you know, in those last year, that last year or two, we had several conversations in which she would say to me, Kent, why can't I go home? There's something different about a Christian. And looking forward is one of those things. It's going to be so much better. Last major point here. The Christian is a child. How'd you like that? I just called you infantile. Okay. The Christian sees himself as a child, and therefore he knows that he has and he will disobey his father. Christian knows he's not just gotten his hand caught in the cookie jar, but he is totally unworthy of God's forgiveness and his love. And he is completely condemned and has no reason to expect anything from God. He is utterly undeserving of that love and deserves to spend his eternity in hell. Yet, there is a paradox. Thank God. Despite this guilt and vile sin that makes each of us as Christians unworthy to stand in God's presence, God sent His Son into the world to live and die blamelessly on the cross for each rebellious, guilty sinner, literally for the enemies of God. A Christian knows that that's a free gift, and it changes his or her whole attitude towards God and others. He knows that he was forgiven, he doesn't deserve it. So what right has he or she to not forgive her, his enemies? Finally, a Christian knows that someday she will awake to look into the face of Jesus Christ who suffered for her in spite of her rebellion. And when that glorious morning comes, and she's looking into his eyes, she does not want to remember that she would not forgive somebody. That instead of loving, she despised or reviled someone else. Why? Because she knows what has been done for her and what's coming to her. Therefore, she loves her enemy. She does good to those who hate her. And she prays for those who spitefully use her and persecute her. She has been changed from the inside out. Christian is not one who reads a sermon on the mount and determines to do his best, to try his hardest to live like that. Instead, we as Christians have this unique relationship to God as his child. And that's why a Christian is different. Notice that Jesus doesn't exhort us to do this so that we can be like God. Instead, he says that 
so that we may be the children of our Father who is in heaven. Please turn to Romans 8. I think this is a key passage. It's short, but significant to each and every one of us. Here, Paul tells us who we really are. Starting in verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You know, for an unbeliever, God is just God. For us, as His children, God is our Father. That's a very different relationship. If God is our Father, we must be special. We've got to be different. The Bible tells us continually that Christ dwells in our hearts richly through His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills us and teaches us His will. It is God who works in you both to will and to work of His good pleasure. More importantly, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. So a Christian cannot help but be different and unique. And that takes us back to the paradox. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, it seems so overwhelming. It almost seems impossible. But then it reminds us that we are the children of our Heavenly Father. That we're not on our own. Christ dwells in us. He is the vine. We are the branches. It is our life purpose to bear good fruit. Question again. Am I different? And that's not to ask, do I say my prayers? Do I go to church regularly? Do I give to the poor? All those are good things. But many do that who are not Christians. If that's all I do, what do I more than others? So what is special about you and me? Uh, you know, Christy and I have been blessed with a bucket load of kids. And when I look at them, they all look different to me. You know, uh, and it, maybe it's because I know their personalities and I know how diverse they are. But when other folks, maybe those who are looking at the trees from outside the forest, say to me, you know, Ken, as soon as I saw him or her, I know she was a Vincent. You know, it, it, I just don't see it. You know, there must be some resemblance in the eyes or the facial structure, whatever it is. Other people see the resemblance that I don't. When I was in Haiti and taught on fatherhood with a bunch of orphans in the, in the audience... I said, you know, we all have earthly fathers, some good, some bad, some perhaps totally absent, we've never even seen. 
But regardless of that imperfection, regardless of the gap that's there, as Christians, we have a father, the best dad in the universe, who is both holy and loving at the same time. Yes, we all have an Abba father. That father makes us special. He makes us unique and different. And the world should be able to identify us by the resemblance to our Father. So, what do you, more than others, are you different? Do you resemble your Abba, Father? Abba, Father, Lord God, we give you the praise for where you have put us. We thank you, Father, for the privilege we have to be here and to enjoy the worship and the fellowship that you present. But Lord, help us to understand that because you are our Father, we are unique, we are special, we are different. Sometimes we lose sight of this, Lord. We all fall short. But yet you have called us to do this. To to do this because we love you as our Father. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us so much. But to those to whom much is given, much is expected. And we pray, Lord, that we would not fall short, that we would follow your plan for our lives and live that out day in and day out. And we would make the changes that we need to make. We would take seriously studying your word and spending time with you every day and looking at others the way that you do, that we would love not just our friends, not just our neighbors, but our enemies as well, and we would do so in the spirit of love that Christ showed to us. Thank you, Father, that you are not only just, you are not only true, but you are gracious and you are loving at the very same time. We ask all these things in the precious and the holy name of Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.